Hello and welcome. I'm Sarah Howard, and this is the Track 2 Podcast. While typically you're used to hearing me with my co-host, Joanne, I have a special series for you from my time in Davos, speaking with leaders from a variety of industries on the fast-growing topic of ESG. These episodes will take a slightly different format than we've done in the past, but we're excited to share these conversations with you. Before we dive in, I wanted to start off with some definitions and context. First, what does ESG stand for? Environmental, social, and governance. The term has really taken off in the last couple years as a way to bring topics of sustainability, social issues, compliance, and more all together. One thing I've found important and useful about it is how it's helping to bring all these conversations together and make it less siloed. While ESG is no silver bullet, it is a helpful framework for conversations about how we move forward. In this episode, we also talk about the SDGs, which are the UN Sustainability Goals. They are a collection of 17 interconnected global goals designed to be a, quote, shared blueprint for peace and prosperity for people and the planet now and into the future. The SDGs were set up in 2015 by the United Nations General Assembly and are intended to be achieved by 2030. My guest today also mentions the Millennium Development Goals, which preceded the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I wanted to take a moment and add some additional context on the origin of these series of goals that have been developed within the UN. Following the end of the Cold War, a series of UN-led conferences in the 1990s had focused on issues such as children, nutrition, human rights, and women, working to produce commitments for combined international action around these issues. But international aid levels were falling short. Hence, the Development Assistance Committee of the OECD, or the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, set up a reflection process to review the future of development aid. The resulting 1996 report, quote, Shaping the 21st Century, developed six international development goals. A year later, it specifically resolved to mandate the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan to come up with proposals for a, quote, number of forward-looking, widely relevant topics, thus opening up the possibility for going beyond the institutional questions of UN reform. Annan's report, when published in April 2000, under the title, quote, We the Peoples, the Role of the United Nations in the 21st Century, framed the questions of UN reform within the larger challenges facing the world, most importantly identifying, quote, to ensure that globalization becomes a positive force for all the world's people, instead of leaving billions of them behind in squalor. In the report, Anand urged the forthcoming Millennium Summit to adopt certain key goals and objectives. Then, in September of 2001, Anand presented to the UN General Assembly a, quote, roadmap towards the implementation of the United Nations Millennium Declaration, which contained a section specifically about the Millennium Development Goals. And this is how we got a goals-based framework. Overall, this process has been a massive effort to move the entire global conversation into a shared framework and language. While it may seem somewhat insignificant on the outside, This kind of alignment building is slow moving, but incredibly important for any effective collaboration, especially across nations. Overall, this process has been a massive effort to move the entire global conversation into a shared framework and language. 
While that might not seem that important or significant, this kind of alignment building is slow moving, but very important for effective collaboration across nations. And actually, this context and background has some salient relevance right now. We're in September of 2022, and next week begins the annual meeting of the UN General Assembly that takes place in New York every year. Earlier this year, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, released a report called Our Common Agenda, which calls for a, quote, ambitious, action-oriented, future-oriented, and tangible outcome document with a view for improving global governance. So we find ourselves now in a very similar time of reevaluation when it comes to this important governing body in the face of so many intersecting crises we see in our world today. To that end, next year in September of 2023, the UN will be gathering for a summit of the future, where some of the topics will include issues that transcend borders, a new agenda for peace, a declaration of special envoy for future generations, and a global digital compact. While faith in large institutions is certainly waning these days, our need for collective action and collaboration is growing every day. I think personally, operating in private equity, in law, in policy, etc., the biggest skill set I now have is my language skills mm. and to understand how do you communicate across the table. Nisa Jetha is a sought-after leading expert in ESG and impact. As a lawyer with a background in private equity, she has served as head of impact and in-house counsel with a portfolio that spanned three nations. Her policy work has spanned across energy security to gender equity, working with and speaking at groups like the UK Parliament, COP26, and the Special Envoy to Sudan from the Senate of Canada. She formed the organization Impact for SDGs, where she leads on many pressing social, environmental, and governance issues. Nisa has degrees from several prestigious schools, including McGill, University of London, and University of Nottingham. She was invited to be part of the World Economic Forum's Initiative for Responsive Investing, in partnership with Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. You're most likely to find Nisa in her little corner of London. Nisa, thanks so much for being here. Pleasure. I'm so honored. I wanted to start out with, when did you first become interested in impact? Okay, well, yeah, big question. It was always just something that was kind of woven within my DNA. And I, so when I was about 18, I went to McGill. I ran in a political lobbying campaign. I got that bug about really wanting to catalyze difference. And so the AIDS Coalition was trying to work on releasing the patent for antiretroviral drugs. And a lot of the pharmaceutical companies were producing these antiretroviral drugs for malaria, TB, and AIDS. But those within the most developing markets would never gain access due to the price point. And I just thought with my ability to kind of sit across different interdisciplinary networks. I can't say that I was party to passing the bill specifically, but after my tenure, it was passed through Parliament, and I just felt really excited about that. Mm -hmm. I studied international development and then worked with a Canadian senator writing her speeches on women's economic and social governance rights. And also at my studies was talking about the Millennium Development Goals. And so I think I was talking about ESG before it was cool. And I think when I really got interested in impact, 
was I was working at a corporate lawyer in London, wasn't a fan. <laughs> and I was just thinking, wow, you work so hard to get these grades, to be at this hedge fund, and then realize that this is not like what I signed up for. <laughs> mm. And I ran in something called the Junior Chamber of Commerce. And it had strategic affiliations with UNESCO and the Council of Europe and the Economic and Social Chamber of the UN. But it had pegged all of their initiatives to the Millennium Development Goals. And again, similarly, when I was at university, the first time I thought, well, why is nobody lobbying for change if the next global agenda is in 2015 Mm -hmm. and the SDGs are about to be adopted? This is a mobilization network of youth from the ages of 18 I think to 40 in across 100 countries, and nobody is talking about pegging their chamber to the next SDGs. And so I became the community director, and I was the first chamber globally to peg our strategy to the SDGs because I thought that would really shape our next global agenda. And then following that, launched my own provisional chamber with the parliamentary undersecretary of state, who was also the climate minister. And she was just very much in alignment and then had the opportunity to really drive and catalyze policy at the global level of this major organization, just because I felt very passionate about why should we be using old vernacular and norms and policy when we could do more forward-looking approaches. One of the things that I'm interested in is the acceleration of ESG in the last couple years in particular. Mm. And because you've been in this space for a while, I'm curious, what's the shift about? Or is it even a shift? Like, are we actually saying something shifting here? And this probably centers around the G, which I think you had a good point. And this is how we make sure this is going to happen. This G is very, very important. You mentioned the millennial goals and SDG. Like, the, we've we've seen different sort of frameworks. What is it about ESG that's different? So, yeah, I think that, like you said, having done this for a period of time, ESG is a negative screening compliance tool, right? Like becoming part of legal framers, compliance, resilience, Mm -hmm. which didn't used to be super cool, which is now super cool. I think people need to really have this demarcation. ESG is sometimes a positive and negative score. In private equity, what we would do is say we were about to buy X pharmaceutical company we would do an ESG due diligence. Mm. What are the environmental breaches? What are the social breaches? Are you having enough C-suite board women? Do you have a policy in place for maternity leave? Are you measuring your waste and water sanitation? And then with ESG, you can get a negative score and say, I will do that investment, but I will put in half a million dollars of excess capital Mm -hmm. and rectify all those breaches, and my score will go higher. So in private markets, that makes sense. And then going to this lobbying campaign and strategic policy forward, because I made that investment, I made X amount of impact. How do you calculate, because I made that investment, 10,000 jobs were created, this Mm. policy was created. And I think that's really the sweet spot when you ask me, how did I get involved in Impact or when was that bug? It was that thrill when I was Mm. 18. I was like, wow, we had this forward-looking projection and we did it. Mm. Or we made the investment after doing our ESG diligence. And because of that, we hired 10,000 people or 40% of the women who now are at C-suite level 
are sitting on boards. So I think when you say a rise in ESG, I think G effectively stands on both of the ENS. So mm-hmm. I can say that I'm going to do all of this, but if I don't have my governance and binding legal documents in place, I'm never going to do it. And effectively, it just makes for a very glossy sales pitch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think transparency in data is going to be huge mm-hmm. because you can't just say that you are working on ESG integration. Because what is that, right? You're integrating ESG, but how and why and what's the strategy? And I think a lot of people ask, what metric should I be using? Mm-hmm. And I'm quite skeptical if people say, I'm solving all of the SDGs at, <laughs> at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're a healthcare consumer business, you could say, well, we're focused on health and women and energy and maybe the 17 like SDG partnerships. That's a really good strategy and you're being very transparent and true to your business. And we see a lot of great green companies that are falling off this SSD ESG mm. index because they're trying to really fit nicely into index mapping when they're great circular economy companies. Maybe they just don't have the bandwidth to report in the way that fits in. So I think it's also about being really mindful because it's voluntary reporting for a lot of this. I think that we need to look geopolitically. We Mm -hmm. need to look at Mm -hmm. our own national governments and Mm -hmm. what's happening, especially with what's happening in Ukraine. It's a massive opportunity to really catalyze going green and our sourcing. And I think that with Davos, it is a really interesting place to come to the table and see because some emerging markets aren't in the same position as Western Mm -hmm. markets to sanction or they're highly pegged to some markets and they're also being heavily subsidized, they're just going to continue to fall forward. So I think ESG, I'm worried about the word a little bit now, Mm -hmm. but we've seen that all through history. Every time something becomes a trend, you stick a sticker on it. And I think every time the UN comes together, there's the SDGs and the MDGs. So so I think that we need to be very careful with the words we're using. I was having a conversation actually with someone last night who was reflecting on the Edelman presentation on trust, which is a fascinating topic right now that parallels ESG. Companies and institutions and governments, like we're in very much in a trust unstable time. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting is he was saying that the trust in business is up which is great, but what it really means is that people are expecting delivery on the things that businesses are promising. Mm. So while they're getting this benefit of increased trust, it's coming with responsibility. And having tools and and ability to actually have the kind of transparency necessary for delivering on those promises, I think there's just not going to be a lot of tolerance for not doing it. And so I think that's the thing that's interesting to me about bringing in this governance part. It's not entirely different, but there's something about it that feels more tangible. And then people are really recognizing that this is not just about we do these nice things <laughs> and that's great. It's how do we actually build this into real systems of accountability and consumers can have some power in what that looks like because people are talking about it. And they're expecting that you have to actually have the integrity to deliver on the things you're promising. To your point, whether that's the social movements, we're seeing this definitely in a lot of social spaces. But I think on the back end, starting to actually bolster some of that is governance. How is it actually showing up legally? That's really what I'm intrigued by that feels like it's having a groundswell moment. And I'm hopeful about that. 
I think that the greenwashing is always something to look for. People are going to find their way uh, around things and like, but you I know, think that's compromise. Why, but I think that's why the G helps exactly. push the market forward. We want to keep the industry clean. Like I'm very much in the industry, you know, because mm-hmm. we worked on something where we did a deal, we did the negative screening, and we got money from a various development finance institutions that because you're co-investing with us, we want to see at least 30% board structure yeah. of mm-hmm. C-suite women. That was great because it was bound into our legal documents. And I think a big part of how do you get these deals done is mm. incentivization, mm-hmm. right? Even when you talk about the climate movement and climate resilience, subsidies for companies, incentives for companies. I always use this example my gym is very expensive. <laughs> my husband and I constantly fight on whether we should go to a different gym. But I love it and it's great. Mm-hmm. And my incentives, right? I use the Vitality app so I mm-hmm. get a free coffee every mm-hmm. week. There's a really nice spa. Mm-hmm. And I'm so incentivized to go four or five times a week. Mm-hmm. I think that with businesses, legislation needs to incentivize the client, right? Yeah. If you want them to report or voluntary report or drive best practice, what are you doing as the regulator? What are you doing as the investor? Mm-hmm. What are you doing in order to really push and set incentivize? And I think that's how we can really move that on like a tangible way forward. Right. I think your point on incentives is really important because that's been a challenge up till now is that the incentives in business are not properly aligned with taking care of the planet and people and what really should be our core values as a human race. And I think that's what this moment is about, is can we start pushing towards realigning? And it can't just be because people only opt in. There has to be other levers. And what I find fascinating about that is it's coming from lots of different places. So the S side and the E side, they're moving at a rate together that makes this pressure towards the G in a way that I don't think we've seen before. I mean, climate, it's moved into a place that business has to think about it in terms of risk mitigation. Like this is not just... It's science. It's (laughs) science and it is, you won't have a business anymore, which is sad. But it's your incentive, right? So again, it just goes back to BlackRock's thing. I don't want my portfolio underwater. And I think everyone thought when we were doing this 10, 15 years ago that I was just fluffy. But now that there's data and the Mm -hmm. big boys are doing it, do I care whether they're doing it for the good Mm-mm. or whether they're incentivized to do it? Because I don't, it doesn't matter. I'm just glad they're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. But look, the language changed. And yes. I think you and I talk about some of the biggest skill sets people will have now is their ability to communicate mm-hmm. across the table. Mm-hmm. So regulators really need to get in the same room and be aligned and use the same words and verbiage in order to do that. And that's a really, really interesting space to be. Then, like you mentioned, that having a very interdisciplinary network probably doesn't look the greatest when you're going through the process, but it actually gives you the most power mm. in decision making mm. because you are able to really speak to both parts of the table and you're very diplomatic on mm. when you're aligning a mission, when you're aligning something like a movement or a lobbying campaign. Yeah, that's one of the things that I find very interesting, particularly here at Davos, is the public-private partnership of this moment. 
business has definitely stepped up in pushing for more regulation. And that is unique. <laughs> I don't think it's the only time it's happened in history, but it's certainly a unique place in terms of the last several decades because it's needed. And it, we're, we're at this place of government needing to figure out what is their actual role in this since it's not been very effective up until this point. But it needs to be collaborative. I'm hopeful that there is a sort of byproduct in this process that is just generally more collaboration. And business is competition, and I think that's fine, and we can keep that, but there is actually a lot of value in collaboration. And right now, we're in that, like, collaboration is the only way we're going to figure this out. Mm-hmm. The only way. And I think you hit on it, too. It's There's this, I would say, leftover it underpins a lot is that it's threatening to collaborate Mm. with your competitor. Exactly. It's very threatening to put all your secrets in your business Mm -hmm. strategy. It's actually Mm -hmm. very much against what you're taught in business to do, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And I think then you look at global governance and the UN and COP and a lot of these forums and the government kind of global strategies, we need us all to come together. Yeah. And I think then... How do you get us to come together with corporates having the then build best practice? Mm-hmm. You need to incentivize them between each other. You need to incentivize them on the policy side. Otherwise, you're going to continue to operate in silos and nothing yeah. will get done. Yeah. And I think that legislators and policymakers really need to get corporate strategists on their team to really be on the same side because their vernacular and their ecosystem has been taught to be competitive Mm -hmm. and not share business secrets and not build together unless there was some policy implication that enabled them to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think like sometimes a bit of my frustration is everyone's in silos and there needs to be more people like you at the table that are bringing these Mm -hmm. conversations and showcasing the gaps because a lot of the time I think personally operating in private equity, in law, in policy, etc. The biggest skill set I now have is my language skills mm. and to understand how do you communicate across the table because I think that there is just a lot of fear-based activity. A lot of people, they're really looking on one side to really collaborate, but they've also been very bruised in business. Mm. And I think being very mindful of the social psychology around business and the social psychology around policy. And then when you're drafting policy, looking at that communications, every word matters. When mm-hmm. I write a press release, I spend a lot of time on how would this look to a corporate? How mm-hmm. is it going to look to a policy person? How is it going to get picked up by a media person? Mm-hmm. And I think that you know your skill set is so expensive because you really are able to look at global leaders from both sides of the table. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like we talk about the next like thought industry. Mm. Yeah. I think the other piece that I'd be curious to hear you about is leadership, especially being here at Davos. I think in addition to collaboration, the only way that's possible is through courageous leaders. We need people to actually step up and make that happen within their organizations. And there's some risk to that. Right? You might have to sort of be on an island for a little bit <laughs> as until people join you. So I think that's the thing that I'm really curious about now, too, is who are those courageous leaders? What does courageous leadership even look like? 
what does even leadership generally look like in this stage? I think we're having a shift in what leadership looks like because one, people are looking to you in a different way and you have to respond to things faster and with more understanding because people are just not interested unless you seem like a human, <laughs> right? Like, unless there's a, like a connection to like, this is more than your talking points or whatever it happens to be. And I think there are some people who are doing that well. And I think there's going to have to be a changing of the card because unless you can do that well, you're going to be able to keep leading organizations. So I'm curious what you're seeing in, in the midst of this conversation on ESG, how leaders are recognizing their role in unlocking some of this. Yeah, so I think you have a couple spaces. One is completely fear-based that mm-hmm. the SEC is on this. I yeah. need to hire a whole compliance team where right. my lawyer is telling me, I don't really care, I just need to get it done and I don't need a fine. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of fear, like, what are we doing about this? And I think that leaders who implement that on a fear-based, it becomes almost like we're like, Mm. oh my God, this is like a really big breach and if I'm holding this hot potato, like I'm going to get in trouble. So Mm -hmm. I think that there's those sides of the leaders. And then I really like this social enterprise model because I notice the leaders within this bucket are often very collaborative yeah. and they're very good at social movement building they're very good at bringing both sides a lot of their business model is listening going through making strategic partnerships because they're not as commercial so those buckets of leaders i find are very good and very strategic in their lens and they have very good government contacts and i think mm-hmm. they're able to really speak to the ecosystem pretty interestingly and i think to your last point on how are people looking at me? Thank mm. you for thinking I'm a leader. And other leaders is that even the way I talk about catalytic leadership now and in other forums, I can be a little more intimate with my thoughts and mm. say that, you know, there is this notion of having the social psychology in how we're viewing things. I've humanized something for people. Mm. I've said, okay. This could be a problem for your kid. This could be a problem for your sister's kid. This could be a problem for you in a business setting. And I think right now, people really want to connect with something that means something. I don't know if there's been any case studies around that, but I think that the future of work has drastically changed. You've seen the great resignation. You've seen people who are saying that I will work half as much and make that because I want to be remote. I want to have a kid. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to travel loads and I think that it's going to be very difficult for this old archaic model of work to mm. really hire like people like you and me and good mm. talent right it's what this whole talk is it been it's like you need to incentivize people right are you pulling at their heartstrings do I want to work 19 hour days at a hedge fund mm. if I can do something remote for just as much now And I think that leaders also really need to incentivize and create more of a flat structure for their team. And you see that that other businesses that are really building and having clout, employees right out of university are getting equity, are getting timeshare, are getting flexi working, and you're getting some of the greatest talent, some of the greatest ideas. And that skill set is very expensive because the market has become very competitive. And if you think about the 20-year-old now, they've been marketed this green sustainability thing from zero. Yeah. And so it's also, if they're the next consumers, they are also very conscious of that. And they're constantly having 
anxiety about what they're doing for the planet, what their world will look like. They've been fed very dark, drastic media and not enough solutions. So a lot of their skill set and their heartstrings are based around that. Mm. And I think if you want to market on the consumer behavior or even for the next leaders, you need the young leaders to be at the table. Mm. And I think good leadership is also cross-generation. Yeah, I think that's very important. I was talking to someone last night from a research institution, and she was mentioning just even within their organization, this tension between generations and even understanding how to do research and make that less siloed because the work is more intersectional. There's an older team member who's leading human rights, and there's a younger leader leading research in the digital space. And there's a bunch of crossover between those right now. And yet the older person is like just overwhelmed by trying to get into that space and understand it and wants to just stay and like, I do human rights and it looks like this. Mm. And And I've been there, right? Like I've been the youngest person on a team and I've just had to hold my tongue because older generation has been taught, this is mine. Don't step on my toes. Yeah. And people feel very threatened. And I think that... It's all about mindset. Mm. Like, how are you really shifting the narrative? And it goes back to language. Absolutely. And I think even yesterday when we were talking about the climate discussions, across the board, I asked every specialist, what can we do? And they all said, business needs to change. Education needs to change. Our Mm. mindset needs to change. And their biggest hurdle was that. And Mm. so how do you solve for that? A lot of it is language. A lot Mm. of it is like a really strong comp strategy that's going Mm -hmm. to be buy-in through the heartstrings of different sectors of society with research Mm -hmm. and i think you need to change that mindset for it to even get into some of these schools for it to even adopt by policymakers. and that's why i really really believe that things like this where you're really working on thought leadership and getting the why out there this is Mm -hmm. important because it'll help you long term and this is why And a lot of people, when they read or when they're caught in their own circles, no one has enough time to say why this values to me. Because it goes back to incentivize. It's human behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I speak for myself. Hard to feel like you can keep up with all the various issues that we're facing at this time and that's exhausting so being able to help with that is huge and that's why a lot of people i know just said they stopped reading the news and it's become very exhausting to be online it's become very exhausting to read the news Mm -hmm. and so if i'm going to read or spend my time it definitely needs to be targeted to me Mm -hmm. and what i value Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so i think that like you said it's going to be a lot on value-based work, mission-driven work, incentivizing your employees, incentivizing your businesses, bringing all sectors to society, but working on a very, very clear vernacular that you can be very careful about with getting your stakeholders to agree on something. Mm. Because a lot of these things happen with people operating in silos and saying, I'm driving my agenda, Mm. and it can't work that way anymore if you want to move policy or push an industry forward yeah i definitely think we're in a nuanced space one of the conversations that i was a part of the other day was looking at 
the challenge of pushing forward in one space, especially on, let's say, green initiatives, might cause some short-term negative impacts. And I think we're going to see a lot of that in this period where driving forward innovation on something might have a short-term, well, that increases X energy use or whatever it happens to be. And being able to really evaluate those sort of trade-offs in both short-term and long-term, that kind of thinking is going to be critical. And having enough both standard for what we're meeting and I guess like grace for we're in a transition and we might not be able to meet all the targets all the time. I think when we just say we put these targets on the table and they're overly zealous. Yeah. There's a lot of scrutiny. We're like, oh, look, we did it and it didn't work. Right. And I think that you've hit on something about the grace. Like we're in a transition. And I do think when we talk about green transition, I love using the word just transition. Yeah. Because it is going to be harder for some markets. If we use an umbrella term like just, I think we can get there faster. Mm -hmm. And I think you've hit it on the nail about just the grace period. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many things that happen, so many mandates that are passed. And then we say we don't do that because it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. But if we have a longer strategy or if there's a percentage on a grace period that we allow for and we say, so it didn't work out. But you know what? That was in our buffer of not working out. Mm. That was that 20 percent hit or miss. But we still solved X. We still decreased emission. We still created larger gender and diversity policies that Mm -hmm. amplified this, that caused this for our vision to be this. I think that's a great impact story. Mm. I think that's a great transition story. And I think just being mindful that what we were doing in the past is not working and we need to be very fluid about how we're going to move it forward. Exactly. And having really aggressive standards and really pushing things forward and organizations having really ambitious goals is important. And we have to figure out how to not make those too risky. So I, mm-hmm. one term I heard is like investors are going to look for regulation, but not necessarily lots of litigation. So how do we find that balance of, okay, we, we have to have an aggressive path forward. Like we don't have a choice. <laughs> We're in a crisis. But if we hold people to an account in a space where we're still figuring out what it looks like, it's going to de-incentivize people from actually having really ambitious goals. Mm-hmm. And what we need more than anything right now is ambition. And if that's tampered by improper incentives or not thought through regulation, that's going to totally hold us back. And I think that kind of bigger picture thinking is what we need to see from regulators. And that's going to require a different kind of model than we've seen from regulation in the past. That's a different kind of thinking. And we have certain leaders in regulation that think that way, but we need so many more. We need business leaders who are also thinking that same way. But we can't keep people from being ambitious because we don't know exactly how to get there yet. One of my colleagues in the space said, because I was like, there's just so much, so much, so much fluff. And she said, but I think it helps also because mm. you're pushing it out there. You're pushing the narrative forward. True. And part of that is how we as citizens show up building more engagement around civic responsibility is really important. That's something I think about, and it it doesn't come up as much in these kinds of spaces, but there's a lot people can do. And I think that we're seeing somewhat of increase in engagement, but also back to the point about exhaustion, 
people are exhausted and they want to see that with something that they do can actually have an impact. Mm-hmm. So being able to create more transparency across this action can actually move this forward. That's where we can start to see better incentives in the regulatory space as well in, in government that needs to have the pressure from their constituents. That's where that incentive, one of those incentives lives. Oh, that's true, right? <laughs> Even the policymakers need to be incentivized. That's where you see more of the grassroots movements being effective. But I think people need to have options that are not just activism. That it's just that this is what it means to be an engaged citizen. This is what it means to be a part of building the future for yourself, not just the sort of narrow definition of what it means to be an activist. And I really saw this at COP, the Mm. activists saying, we're not doing enough, and the shaming of everyone. And then Mm -hmm. the business is saying, we want to do this, but it's hard, we don't want to be sued, we're very nervous. And I think that each need to educate one another. Mm-hmm. I believe in both. Like I think activism and lobbying is great yeah. and actually super, super important. And I think businesses are also funding like through their tax dollars these initiatives. And I think that there needs to be like a respect mm. for both because I think a lot of time there is this naming of shaming on both ends mm-hmm. because they're just not educated and they don't have the lens on actually what the other is doing. Mm-hmm. And that's very difficult. It's like having two siblings who just really hate each other and you're never going to get them to come to the table. Yeah, That was actually really disappointing for me mm-hmm. seeing that where you have very, very kind of radical left and right views and you know they'll never come to the table. Mm-hmm. And so where can people sit in the middle to work on educating both? I think that there is this like social emotional psychology aspect that's going to really get them to the table because everything else hasn't worked to this date and they're becoming more polarized absolutely which goes back to your point about incentives i feel like right now the incentive structure is very poor for our long-term goals because in our social media world that we live in what is rewarded is the vitriol is the being on the extreme side of things the out more outlandish the more rewarded with attention with attention okay so i would say not necessarily good attention but with absolutely attention. yeah it has to come apart from who's screaming the loudest who's who's making sense mm-hmm. this is where i have a lot of appreciation for bridge builders i think it's such an essential role and all the spaces in our world right now because it feels like you can't get people to come together on anything. And those who can have a real superpower. We need more of them. I agree. Nisa, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure being here and it's like, yeah, very grateful for your time. Likewise. What I appreciate about this conversation with Nisa was how we were able to add more of the key themes when it comes to conversations about ESG. There are a few that I want to highlight because I either hear them often or I want to hear them more. First, with her compliance background, Nisa's distinction that ESG can be used as a negative and positive score, like a balance sheet, when it comes to overall compliance, I found that to be a very clarifying point. As this very new space continues to develop, we're going to see more data and metrics for measuring impact. 
which is why it's really important at this stage to get all the stakeholders to the table to build the framework for understanding what to measure and what is considered impact. Like I said in the opening of this episode, these frameworks are incredibly important for any of these kinds of processes because how we talk about the problem is also how we're going to talk about the solution. And we really need as much input as possible to inform these kinds of dialogues. Second, NISA really drove home the need for proper incentive structures. This is at the heart of regulation and the public-private partnership for building a new kind of regulatory framework. This was something I definitely saw in many different spaces across Davos. And finally, our conversation about leadership and ambition. ESG is at a stage where compliance and communication need to work close together. Being able to communicate effectively about both success and failure is critical. And one thing I'm really curious to watch is how, as a society, we're going to talk about failure, about missing targets. This is what I was trying to get at in our conversation with my point about needing ambitious goals, but at the same time not being afraid of PR fallout when they're not met, because we're in this transition. We can't have too much hedging at this stage in the game because we need ambition. So the question is, how do we have accountability while also encouraging ambition? It's a really nuanced conversation that is hard to have in the polarized public square. And then something we didn't discuss, but I wanted to highlight here, is that people like Nisa with a unique and robust career in ESG work are in record-setting demand. For example, in India, the demand for ESG jobs has grown 468% in the last three years. And last year, PwC announced a $12 billion plan to create 100,000 jobs in ESG by the year 2026. And the amount of money under ESG investment funds has more than doubled in the last two years. So the demand for talent far, far exceeds the supply right now, which is going to make this a very competitive market for the next couple of years in particular. This is a really interesting and exciting time for an entirely new market that has the opportunity to be shaped by those who are a part of it early. So thank you for joining me today. I am really excited to continue sharing these episodes from this special ESG series captured in Davos. And to learn more about the Track 2 podcast, visit track2media.com. And if you liked this episode, we would so appreciate it if you left a review. Thanks for supporting independent creators like us. And join me for the next episode.